This is Science Moab. I'm Christina, and today we have an interview about what people ate in the past to understand how they used the environment around them with Dr. Timothy Riley. Rose Inkelhoff interviews Dr. Riley about how to study what humans ate and some of the reasons why understanding the past is important. It's a good show. Stay with us. That's one of the things in this country that we see is that our sort of history of humanity here has been truncated or at least uh, abbreviated by uh, by the colonization um, and the, the displacement of most native groups uh, into landscapes that maybe aren't their ancestral landscapes and other things like that. And because of that, we have a whole thousands of years of history that uh, most of us think very little about. And we know that thou- the same thousand years of history for the Middle East or for England and, and, and Western Europe or the Mediterranean a lot better than we know that same thousands of years of history here in, in our own landscape we live in today. And that's one thing I, I always like to do is sort of help people, help remind people that even if this is not your direct sort of, you know, genetic uh, ancestral history, it's still the shared human history of this landscape, this landscape that you presumably love since you live here and, and enjoy it to recreate or to, you know, to, to communicate spiritually with or however you enjoy the beautiful Colorado Plateau. Today we have a show about southwestern archaeology and paleoethnobotany, or the study of plants that past humans have used, with Dr. Timothy Riley. Dr. Riley is a paleoethnobotanist and a curator of archaeology at the Prehistoric Museum at Utah State University Eastern in Price. Dr. Riley studies what people ate in the past to understand how they used the environment around them. In this interview, Rose Inglehoff talks to Dr. Riley about ways to figure out what humans ate in the past, why we should care about it, and work he has done with experimental archaeology, which involved actually building a Fremont pit house to test what life would have been like living inside one. We begin the interview with Dr. Riley explaining what paleoethnobotany really is. My training is within the field of archaeology, and I'm a paleoethnobotanist, which is a big fancy word. But when you break it down, paleo means old, ethno is people, just like ethnicity or ethnography, and botany is plants. That's how people use plants in the past. And uh, why? Why? Who cares? Why? Who cares? Well, that's a good question. You know, I mean, I think we could ask that of most of the uh, fields of archaeology or even uh, paleontology, geology, or history, uh, or astrophysics for that matter. Why? Why do we care? I mean, I think one of the reasons we care, and I guess I'll answer the question from an archaeological perspective first, and then I'll talk about specifically paleoethnobotany, is because it's there. Because there's evidence, particularly in eastern Utah, of past humans since the Ice Age, all over here, right? Whether it's fulsome spear points associated with the hunting extinct Ice Age bison, whether it's the cliff dwellings down in the newly designated Bears Ears National Monument, whether it's the rock art right along the Colorado River going here here through Moab, it's a tangible expression of our history. It's a tangible expression of who was here before us. Um, And so I think that's a lot of the reasons why people are interested in archaeology. Uh, That's one of the reasons why people started coming to the Four Corners region of the Southwest was because of the incredible preservation in archaeology and the mystery of those before us. Um, Now, whether or not we address those from a perspective like maybe the popular show Ancient Aliens or whether we're a little bit more um, scientific in our approach and the types of questions and data we can marshal. So I think in general, archaeology... uh, 
you know, you could gloss it simply as those who are don't know their history are doomed to repeat it or something along those lines. Um, but I, I think in general, it's just because we have an innate curiosity about what happened before us, because that's, that's not an experience we can have. We can only understand it through either written records or through the stuff they left behind as archaeologists do. Now, why in particular do we, am I interested in plants? Why do I think studying the plants that people left behind or used in the past? I look at it as a fundamental base level of, of society uh, is, and, I'm, and it's paleoth body is how people use any plants. I'm particularly interested in what they ate. Uh, plants are the foundation of almost every diet outside of the Arctic that we've ever recorded uh, and, and the human history of the Earth. Uh, and people have been really ingenious about how they've used plants, whether it's things like wild potatoes that have cardiac glycosides in them that, that actually cause death unless you eat them with the right type of clay that will bond that into an organometallic compound so that your body can't digest that toxin, or whether it's figuring out ways to cook roots long enough that we can turn these indigestible carbohydrates like inulins and other fructans into sugars that we can digest. People have been ingenious in how they've approached making a living off this landscape, and that's primarily through plants. By this landscape, I mean the Colorado Plateau, but it could be applied to any landscape. So that's why I think it's important. It's uh, information about how people have, have uh, foraged and farmed in uh, environments all over the world. We could learn lessons about how to farm in arid environments by studying the ancestral Puebloan and the Fremont farmers who are here before before us, whether it's uh, gravel mulching or checkerboard uh, agricultural fields or some of the irrigation techniques they used. Um, it's things we can learn and apply to uh, making our own sort of way of life or system better. For example, in my dissertation studies, I actually studied a very specialized subset of, uh, of paleoethnobotany, uh, which is called coprolite studies mm -hmm. or coprolites. And this is a Greek words again, fancy words. Copros means dung. Lithos is is stone. Dung stone. We borrowed it from paleontologists, and you do sometimes get fossilized uh, dino poop or alligator poop. In fact, you can go get some up at the uh, rock shop up in the north end of town. I'm sure they'll have some there. But we also find uh, human coprolites. Uh, they're not mineralized. They're not really dung stones. They're generally desiccated and dried out or they're waterlogged. And so actually my, uh, in, in particular, my dissertation research focused on that and how can we understand diet through taking somebody somebody's leavings from a meal 8,000 years ago and use it to understand a bit about the, how they exploited their environment and how they lived within their own culture. Where would you find these human coprolites? So you find them in extreme <laughs> preservation conditions. So sometimes you find them waterlogged. Uh, for example, I've looked at some coprolites. They ended up being dog coprolites, uh, but nonetheless from some plank houses along the northwest coast, uh, up in the area where the Shimshian and the Bella, Bella, the Bella Kula, some of these other tribes, uh, when we think of uh, the totem poles on the northwest coast, those tribes. So you might get them there because it's well preserved and wet. Sometimes they're preserved under uh, in a permafrost condition. They're getting all sorts of caribou uh, leavings and other ungulate leavings on the north slope of Alaska as, as some of the permafrost comes back. And they're getting the same sort of thing up in the glacial fields in Wyoming and, and Montana. And mostly what they're looking at there are, are like wood perishable objects, but you could potentially also find poop. Sometimes it's just extreme desiccation and dryness. So uh, down in Southern California in the interior around the Salton Sea, which was an interior 
salty lake at, at, for, for quite some time, there are coprolites preserved in open air sites. But most of the time you get them from places where you, they're not directly exposed to the elements. So you get them from a rock shelter or a cave setting, or you might get them from a architectural setting. And so actually the Puebloan world, the ancestral Puebloan world is a pretty rich source for that because we have lots of masonry and adobe structures, some of which are still standing or at least have intact lower floors. And coprolites have been found throughout all of them. We also have lots of rock shelters around here. And that's another place where we get them. So. So you go into a, a, a shelter, you know, you find mm-hmm. this ruin and you go in and you find some desiccated coprolites. What's the next step? What do you do to, to get information out of that? So I, like with anything in archaeology, provenience, and by that we mean sort of the location and where something's from, is, is key. One of the things that we find is that when we, lots of rock shelters are heavily impacted by collecting and looting uh, and uncontrolled excavations. Excavations are destructive aspect. You're destroying part of the site by excavating it. That's why as archaeologists, when we excavate, we're very careful to document everything with maps and photos and notes and take as many samples as we can and try and address any potential future research concerns we could have, including sediment samples. And that's uh, generally something that's been lacking at times in the past. For example, where I worked in West Texas, there was a big dam building project, just like Glen Canyon, and they built the Amistad Reservoir around the uh, Mexican-U.S. border in West Texas. And at the time, there's lots of rock shelters down there, too, uh, beautiful limestone caves uh, with hunter-gatherers over the last 13,000 years who've lived there. And at the time, in the late 50s and early 60s, when they were, when they were excavating this, they were finding these coprolites, uh, high fiber, so fairly almost patty-shaped in their, uh, in their dried state after they've been deposited. Uh, they were finding them in the screen, clogging their screen as they're screening the dirt, looking for artifacts. And they weren't very interested in these types of questions. They were interested in reconstructing what different projectile points, different spear and arrowheads people used over time, what were changes in sandal and basketry technology, things like that. And so they were actually taking these, and they would frisbee them out over the updrafts coming off of these deep rivers. It's the Pecos River and the Rio Grande come together right there. And to see who could get it the furthest during lunch. They use them as entertainment. And they probably threw out thousands and thousands of these. And so part of the first step is recognizing them as valuable data. And that was one of the big problems for years. Coprolite science was derided as not archaeology. The first person who really got into it was a, a Canadian who was actually a plant pathologist and got sort of uh, ridiculed from the botanical side of things. But once they've been identified as data, there, there's a couple important things to think about. What, what questions are we going to ask of these coprolites? This is true of almost any data set, whether it's archaeology or any other science. Are we interested in recovering plant components to understand how they ate plants? Are we interested in their plant and animal components? What about lines of evidence? Is, are we just looking at seeds? Are we looking at things we can only see with a microscope? What about molecular stuff? Can we get things like DNA? Can we sex coprolites? Uh, using fecal steroids uh, and things like that. And those are all uh, techniques you can apply. And so that's the first thing to sort of say is, well, what's the question? So, for example, if I'm interested in some coprolites, uh, and Paisley Cave in Oregon is a good example of this, they have some coprolites that are older than the Clovis era, which is generally the first era, accepted era of people in North America, Ice Age hunters coming from Beringia across the Bering Strait and through the Cordelian and Laurentide ice sheets as they separate and into the uh, open continent, free of humans anyways, America, uh, and spreading. These coprolites directly date to just prior to that. This is up in, uh, in sort of south-central Oregon. Uh, and they also have human DNA in them. Well, if I'm interested in understanding if that human DNA is from the coprolite, I need to make sure when I'm collecting them, I'm doing it in a controlled fashion. And so, for example, I've been uh, on some projects out by uh, Wendover where I was excavating a column to recover coprolites wearing basically a Tyvek hazmat suit and a uh, respirator face mask and double gloved in order to make sure my DNA was not contaminating them. So once we're back in the lab, what do we do? And the first 
first record we have of copyrights in the 1890s by a, a guy, Harshberger, who also coined the term ethnobotany. And he had these things from both Kentucky and also from parts of Africa. And the problem is you have this dried-out poop. Well, okay, I'll understand what somebody ate. Well, if I pull it apart, it just breaks apart. If I try and screen it through a screen, it crumbles. Yeah, it, nothing really worked. And so basically it wasn't until the 50s when a guy invented this technique, the same guy, uh, Eric Callan from Canada, invented this technique. He borrowed it from a zoological approach where they rehydrated it in basically a simple detergent solution, trisodium phosphate, and allowed them to sort of rehydrate these. And in fact, depending on what was in the diet at, at the it, represented by the, by the excrement, uh, they, they smell. And some of them smell musty, some of them smell like poop thousands of years later. And it's due to things like fecal scatterols and things like that that volatilize once they're rehydrated. But you rehydrate them, and then you screen it apart, and you look at all the little uh, epidermal plant tissues, and you look at all the bones or hairs from the animals. But then you also take sort of the bulk uh, component, what looks like dirt at this point, and then you uh, basically do a, a number of wet chemistry processes in order to look for various things like starch right, or phytoliths, which are little crystals that form in plant cells. Plants only have a, an excretory system through their stoma. right? It's only uh, it's only a atmospheric excretory system. So all the minerals they, they absorb up through the water in their roots, they have to do something with, and they deposit them in crystals, and, and they can be fairly specific. So there are corn-specific phytoliths that you could look for. Um, and so that, those are the basic steps. That's what you would do is you'd have to rehydrate it and take it apart. But then what does it all mean? Okay, so let's say I have cactus seeds, and then I have epidermal tissue from a cactus and epidermal tissue from we'll go back to west texas and say an agave heart and then i've got some fibers from agave and uh cactus well how do i put all those lines of evidence together what do they mean in terms of does this equal a certain amount of the diet proportion to each other or can we say it's they ate two cactus tunas and a prickly pear pad you know how can we do that uh and that's one of the big steps is going from what is left behind what you didn't eat which is really what the coprolite is it's things like the sweet corn you had at the barbecue last night that your body can't actually properly digest or uh or other things like that right it's the stuff that you didn't eat how do we go from that back to what people combined into menus and that can be a hard a hard um thing to do. A lot of it's done by uh, experiments. Some people have done experiments where they've basically ate specific diets and looked at what their excrement looked like. There needs to be more of that done, really. Uh, but believe it or not, coprolite studies are a fairly small field. Not too many people enjoy uh, being called uh, Dr. Poop, but you know, uh, it comes with the territory. I mean, the other thing would be, if, as I said, you can use uh, ster- steroids in the feces to actually sex out coprolites, potentially. It's been done in one or two studies and seems it works with modern feces and it should work with good preservation uh, with ancient feces as well. In the case of the stuff from Paisley Cave, maybe we don't care what they were eating 13,500 years ago, 14,000 years ago. Maybe we only care that these are human coprolites and that they're directly dated to that time period. Um, and that's one thing that's made coprolites have a big sort of resurgence, sort of, is because they do they are a comp- biochemically complex artifact. You can radiocarbon date them. So even if there is a coprolite in somebody's looter back dirt, there's potential that you could actually figure out, well, it's from 1,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago, or whatever. You can look for DNA, both of the stuff people ate, the people themselves, and what's as abundant as the cells on our body, all the bacteria in us and on our skin. And you can actually get that bacterial flora signature as well from the DNA. Um, so there's a lot of things people you could can do. Um, and so it really is a question of having scientists from all these different disciplines interested in collaborating. As I said, I'm primarily a paleoethnobotanist. What I'm 
fo my, my focus is looking at the plant components, whether it's the, the visible things, the macroscopic, as we might call them, or whether it's the microscopic things, things like pollen grains and starch and phytoliths. Is coprolite studies, would that still be the main component of the work you're doing now, or are you mostly just managing the museum? Yeah, um, like just trying to get bring things back to Utah, you know. Yeah, so, sure. Uh, so I still uh, I still dabble with coprolites. Working in a museum, so uh, I work up at the Prehistoric Museum in Price. Uh, it's a part of Utah State University Eastern, and uh, it's basically the mission is the uh, understanding the and, and promoting uh, the education of the geology, paleontology, and archaeology of Eastern Utah. And I'm over the Hall of the Archaeology, um, and then we have the Hall of Paleontology as well. It's a great area. We're right perched in Price, right on the northwest corner of the Colorado Plateau, looking down on this on the Utah region of it. And because of that, I'm much more of a generalist now. Um, yes, I still do some paleothnobotany, but I'm also uh, interested in ceramics and general field work uh, and also lithics, the stone tools people used, and differences in architectural style. Um, and so really a lot of it is dealing with whatever's at the museum as well as ongoing field work and other uh, research projects I'm involved with in the area. So, Any uh, big projects going on in southeast Utah right now? There is always good and interesting research going on in southeastern Utah. It's one of the most uh, archaeologically rich areas of the country, uh, whether we're talking about the rock art in Nine Mile Canyon or whether we're talking about the uh, the ruins, the Puebloan ruins down in the Blanding area and in San Juan County more generally. In terms of big projects uh, that I'm involved in, my main field work right now is focused on a small Fremont pit house on the edge of the book cliffs. The book cliffs are this massive formation. It's actually the longest cliff face in the entire world that runs more or less from Helper all the way to uh, Palisades in Colorado. Uh, and in that book cliffs, uh, in the tablets, there's the Nine Mile Canyon, which is one of the most famous rock art galleries made by the Fremont and also Range Creek, which is a, a field station run by the Natural History Museum of Utah up in Salt Lake City, which has very well-preserved Fremont community as well. I'm actually working on a house on a drainage that leads up to two of the main canyons into both of those. If you're going to Range Creek, you'll go right by East Carbon. Um, and I'm working just south of East Carbon along Grassy Trail Creek at uh, basically a simple everyday house that a Fremont family would have lived in about a thousand years ago. Uh, and I'm interested in that from that perspective as sort of looking at household archaeology. And here's just, you know, one snapshot of a family living in eastern Utah a thousand years ago. Uh, and the reason I'm interested was interested in, in working at this site is because we don't, even though most of us live along the Price River in that part of uh, of Utah, and most of us live along the main rivers. You know, like if you look at where the population is in Emory County, it's along all the uh, all the main rivers. That would have been true probably of the Fremont as well. They're farmers like us. It's not alfalfa, but it, it's maize, and it's corn, and it's it's most likely irrigated farming as well. Um, and so lots of the big communities along the Price River are now under our communities. And so I wanted to look at this creek as sort of an entry point entryway into uh, Nine Mile Canyon and Range Creek. So that's one thing I'm, I'm actively doing, and I'm wrapping that up this this month with some student interns. And then in the fall, I'm actually collaborating with a local company, Montgomery Archaeological Consultants, based here in Moab. They do a lot of the, uh, there's federal laws, Section 106 of the National Historic Preservation Act, and some other laws as well that basically require when there's federal monies or federal oversight of a project, they have to assess the archaeological resources and they have to assess uh, historic architecture and things like that. And anyways, Montgomery Archaeological Consultants does a lot of that uh, for projects, uh, development projects around here in eastern Utah. But I'm collaborating with them, Arizona State University's School of Tourism and the local BLM Price Field Office to do an excavation up in Nine Mile Canyon at a site called the Cottonwood Village. Sometimes it's called the Fremont Village. It's one of the areas they're developing in Nine Mile Canyon for interpretive. And we're going to be working with school groups, high school age 
volunteer groups from uh, both some of the tri tribal uh, high schools on the Uinta Uray Reservation and perhaps others, as well as some of the local high schools in our community and have them out there on weekends this fall uh, do it, learning about archaeology and sort of uh, the history of, of the area. So that's going to be a fun sort of interactive public engagement project. And those are those are sort of my two big field projects uh, currently. Another thing I've been involved in, as I mentioned uh, when we were talking about coprolites, uh, the idea of experimental coprolite studies where you uh, eat a specific diet. Oh, I think this is what the Fremont might have eaten in the spring and what's it look like in a, in a, in a, in a fecal uh, deposit. Uh, I'm also interested in doing sort of other experimental archaeology into that. Uh, and uh, my director and I actually built a Fremont-style pit house um, about a year and a half ago. And it was partially for fun, but mostly for science. Um, the questions were, you know, how warm are these things in the winter? How cool are they in the summer? They're only semi-subterranean. And just, just to sort of back up, a pit house is sort of the standard house structure in, across eastern Utah from about maybe 2,000 years ago till about maybe... 600 700 years ago in san juan county what we call the puebloan world and in the fremont era it continues up until about 700 years ago people lived in these structures and they're semi-subterranean they dug a shallow pit and then they built a wood and mud superstructure over them and you can go see a recreation of one at fremont indian state park over off of i-70 west of here uh, there's some other ones around as well but that's a pretty good one so we built one and we monitored temperatures every hour inside and outside for a whole year to see how well insulated they were. And, the, and you know, our thinking was, well, basements are always cooler in the summer and warmer in the winter, but a basement's fully encapsulated in sort of the entire earth as the thermal mass. Whereas if you look at the, what we call the R value, right, the insulation value of dirt, it's actually not very high because it doesn't trap air very well. It's too dense to be a really good insulator the way uh, something like the foam insulation we use in our houses today are. So how good are these walls that are maybe two to four inches of, of mud over a bunch of sticks at trapping heat or keeping, keeping heat out? And so we did that. We monitored that and found out that, in fact, it is quite a comfortable place. Uh, we also did some uh, work looking at how well lit it was in there. And it's like a skylight, the, the openings in the roof It's uh, that you come down, you walk down a stairway in the roof, and it's like a skylight. It's actually much better lit there than, uh, than I think than I thought, for sure. I think you could do pretty fine needlework or other type of uh, fine detailed work almost any time when it was light outside. And we also looked at smoke ventilation and some other, other issues, and we did that both with uh, some uh, computer modeling and wind simulations as well as, uh, as well as some actual smoke bomb tests in there. And what we found is that it's actually a, it's basically a truncated cone, so it's basically like an ice cream cone turned upside down and then cut off more or less flat on the top. And that shape actually creates a sort of low-pressure uh, spot as the air goes up and over this truncated cone kind of similar to an airplane wing. And the way that works, you know, is that there's less pressure on top of the wing, so it allows it to rise. And the same sort of thing would happen where it would more or less with any breeze over a couple of miles an hour, it would have pulled most of the smoke out of this really tiny smoke hole. So that was kind of fun. But then we decided, well, for example, the pit house I'm excavating over by East Carbon was burnt. So let's seed this with some fake artifacts or salt it with some fake artifacts, map where they are, take some pictures of what it looked like, and then burn it down and see uh, and see see what it looks like when we excavate it in a year or so as we let it sort of weather out and, and erode a little bit more. And that was actually a pretty uh, interesting experience. Frequently, Fremont passes are found burnt. Not always, but but a lot of them are burnt. And it, you know, it, people some people think it's intentional, and it probably is. Other people think maybe they caught on fire accidentally. It was incredibly hard for us to burn this pit house. There was not enough oxygen in there. 
without us basically knocking holes in the side. And this had ventilation shafts on the north and south side. Uh, we had packed it with some brush. It took us about three or four times to get it going. And when it finally caught, it smoldered and burnt for a while. And then a big, huge conflagration. Uh, and it was pretty fun to watch. And, uh, and, you know, we videotaped and documented it with photos. And so the long-term plan is to sort of look at uh, how understanding this pit house from a building it, you know, the amount of effort that went into digging the hole and, and uh cutting the logs and, and building it all together through some of the aspects of living in it, you know, in a really cold winter, what would it have been like, you know, would have been filled with smoke and dingy and dark and an uncomfortable place to live. And it really actually probably would have been, I mean, we would have looked at it as a little bit odd, you know, he still has a dirt floor most likely. And, uh, and you know, maybe compact, packed and, uh, and, and smooth dirt floor, but a dirt floor nonetheless, but it actually would have been a pretty comfortable house. And I think that's something that when we think about people living in the past, we sometimes forget. And that's one of the things we always do as humans, right? Is we always sort of internalize our cultural way of doing things as being a natural point of view or, or, or the way the world is. And I think sometimes when we, when we look at people living in a very different lifestyle, uh, you know, it's either hard for us to relate or we react in disgust or horror. Right. Um, and I think, you know, if we talk about eating, you know, Mormon crickets as a source of protein, right. Something like that. Oh, that's disgusting eating bugs. But the reality is it actually would have been a great way to keep your protein levels up and, and live a, a healthy, uh, life and, and, you know, and, and improve your kids' lives and everything else. And so I think that's one of the things I always want to try and reinforce to people is that, yeah, these people might've lived a long time ago. They might've spoke completely different languages than us and had different, you know, religious views and worldviews and uh there might not have been tons of commonality but when it came down to it we all had families we cared about we all had favorite meals you know we all had uh you know favorite aspects of of our our household or our landscape and our yard around us and i think that's important to remember that, that we're sort of reflecting back on um on communities just like our communities today what first got you interested in science and specifically in paleo ethnobotany well I was always encouraged. I grew up in the great state of Michigan, and I always kind of liked science, but I was actually really much more of a history buff. Uh, History was what I loved. I loved uh, American West history. Uh, I loved medieval history. My mom's from England, so whenever we went back to see my grandparents and aunts and uncles, I would see all these incredible structures. And so I left for college thinking I was going to be a history major with a geology minor or maybe try and double major in geology, geophysical sciences. I had taken a geology class in high school and thought it was quite interesting. I think I mostly wanted to go spelunking in caves. I uh, didn't realize that maybe uh, most geology jobs don't involve, uh, you know, adventure exploring. And I went to college down at the University of Chicago, and I just happened to take a class my sophomore year called Ancient Celtic Societies. I said, oh, I'm interested in Celtic stuff. Uh, you're thinking we're talking Ireland? Well, no, we're talking about all the Celtic peoples of, of basically Western Europe. And it was taught by a guy named Michael Dietler who looks at how the, the Celt-Roman uh, trade interaction spheres. And I really enjoyed that class. And I thought, wow, that was really interesting. I got to think about people in the past, but I got to do it from um, a perspective that was perhaps a little bit more uh, hypothetical deductive than we than we generally see in historiography, right? We're not using these primary written texts. We're looking at, you know, these massive trade amphora that they used to ship wine and olive oil up to the, up to the Celtic communities and, and things like that. And what does that tell us about these trade interactions? And I said, well, that's really neat. Okay, I'm, you know... Finishing my sophomore year, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm gonna have to do something this summer. I could go work in a restaurant or maybe roof again this summer. 
but there's an opportunity to do, go to an archaeology field school because I really had no idea what archaeology was. I mean, I guess maybe innately I did, like most of us probably do, or more specifically anthropology. In in this country, archaeology is one of the sub-disciplines of anthropology. Anthropology is, uh, again, to break it down, anthropos means uh, humans or man, and logos is the study of, right? So it means the study of humanity, pretty broad, and archaeology, the study of the stuff that people have used in the past or even in the present, is, is one of those sub-disciplines. So I decided to go to a field school, and it happened to be in New Mexico on a Pueblo site just east of Albuquerque, and I'd never been to the Southwest before, and I pretty much fell in love with these beautiful mountains, the green chilies, the afternoon monsoon uh, rain shadows coming up the, up the mountain towards us, the incredible archaeology, uh, and I really just loved the Southwest, and I loved this history of the Southwest. What do you enjoy about being a scientist? Wow. How much time do we have? The reality uh, of it is that when you make a discovery, and it doesn't have to be a major discovery, it can't just be finding part of a bone all on the floor that somebody left it on inside their house a thousand years ago, 900 years ago, and using that to think about that person, using that bone all to weave their baskets or perhaps to work leather. Um, is that type of uh, real tangible discovery of the past that I find to be the most rewarding part of archaeology or science uh, more broadly. And really, I think a lot of it is, is sharing that with, with others, with the public. And that's one of the reasons I, I enjoy being in a museum setting. A lot of my job is reaching out, whether it's giving tours to kindergartners, to senior citizens at the museum, or whether it's uh, having people stop by digs and, and talk to me about uh, this history of the Americas that, for the most part, they were either unaware of or just knew very little about. Thanks for coming in. Happy to do it. The music for our show is by Jeremy Spaulding. The science news comes from Science Daily. Student interviews are coordinated by Chrissy Post. And the show is produced by Christina Young and KZMU. We're going to Science Fest. To learn about rocks and stars, birds, dinosaurs, soil.